box to box stoppage time. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Hello and welcome to Box to Box Stoppage Time, a show in which we traverse the week that was in the football world through our games, teams and hot topics. Willem van Denderen with you, Derek Dyson and Michael Edgley with me. We've got European qualifiers, Victorian NPL, Germany's demise and Women's Champions League to pack into the next 25 minutes. Derek Dyson, you have the new ball. Please kick us off with your game of the week. Thanks, Willem. Lots to choose from, uh, as always, in this action-packed international break. Uh, I've gone for... Saudi Arabia 1, Costa Rica 5. Um, I've gone for this for, for a few different reasons. It was a, a good win for, for Costa Rica, who really uh, made Saudi Arabia pay for some slack defending, going 2-0 up. A great uh, move involving former Arsenal player Joel Campbell, if you uh, uh, remember him. Uh, this was Roberto Mancini's first game in charge of Saudi Arabia. They pulled one back to 2-1 Al, Ali al Bilali uh, got the goal, but Costa Rica, through Randall, Leal, wrapped it up in the 89th minute. But the main reason I wanted to mention this one, apart from Mancini losing his first game in charge, uh, was firstly that where this game was played. Can any of you gents tell me where this football match was played? No, it was played at St. James's Park, Newcastle. Would you believe it? Uh, just happened to be free for the game. Um, but of course, Saudi Arabia doesn't have anything to do with Newcastle United Football Club. Um, so it was played at it was played at St James's Park. Um, they're going to play another game there against South Korea later in the week. Um, there was a Newcastle fan group uh, against sports washing outside uh, the stadium, um, holding up posters aloft and protesting the game. Um, there were five thousand supporters uh, attended the game. That the stadium was about one tenth full. And just to add to things. Saudi Arabia's sports ministry had a media blackout after the game, which meant that Mancini wasn't allowed or the media weren't prevented from talking to him after the game uh, to, to so that you know he didn't need to answer ask or answer questions on uh, why they were playing a game in Newcastle. Um, but yeah, not a great start for, for Saudi Arabia and their adopted stadium. And uh, we'll have to see... Um, how they do against South Korea. But I think you've also got to say this really is a two fingers from the Saudi Arabian government to any critics because this is the most blatant and flagrant two finger salute to anyone that's critical of the regime. We will do what we like and, uh, you know, we're not going to try and hide it from anyone. So, um, yeah, that, just that, that, that uh, interested me. What do you think, Edge? I just think that uh, we might give a tip to the financial fair play investigators or auditors, whatever you want to call the people at the uh, Premier League who fossick around the uh, uh, the invoices uh, and check butts of uh, Premier League clubs. They might want to check out how much uh, Saudi Arabia's Football Federation paid to hire the ground. They might have paid uh, a very large sum, Derek. They may, they may, they may well have done edge, and I, I don't have access to those to, to those stumps. But um, I know that we want to be careful not just to jump on like let's it's Newcastle, it's Saudi Arabia, let's just stick the boot in. But I just think clearly, you know, I think we can all see what is going on here. Um, and you know, what what just makes me laugh is that in other scenarios, um, you know, people try and spin around it and whatever. There's no spin here. It's just we're just going to do what we like and we'll play two games at 
St. James's Park and, and, and that's it. So uh, 5,000 people enjoyed it. Uh, I think Costa Rica enjoyed it more. Well done to them. Yes. What have you got for us, Edge, game-wise? Taking into account in that last Brazil. comment that uh, Costa Rica weren't blowing anyone away at the, uh, at the World Cup. Uh, no, they weren't. In fact, I saw Costa Rica beat New Zealand in the playoff. I remember that. And, um, yeah, they were rubbish there and they were rubbish at the World Cup. Um, Brazil 5, Bolivia 1. You might think, why did Edge choose that as his game of the week? It's because Neymar has overtaken Pele as Brazil's greatest ever goal scorer. The Al-Halal forward um, took his tally to 78 with the two goals in this uh, in this match. And FIFA figures have Pelé on 77 goals. But you might say, is that all, Willem? And it's not all because there is conjecture about how many goals Pelé scored. And we have to sort of go into a bit of detail here, but I think it's actually worthwhile. So FIFA's data for caps and goals considers matches between two separate nations, i.e. Brazil versus England. Um, Wayne Rooney and Frank Lampard's goals in that game in February 2013 counted towards... Um, their goal scoring charts in FIFA records. Where the discrepancy occurs is obviously in the 1960s and 70s. Um, Young Pelé at the time was such a box office hit that clubs like Atletico Madrid, Inter Milan, Juventus, Barcelona, they all made their way to Brazil to play matches against Pelé and pick up the big fees. Um, And as a result of that, Pelé in those types of matches had scored 18 goals in 22 which took his tally to 95. So the Brazilian Federation say uh, Pelé's total is 95. Therefore, Neymar wasn't celebrated. However, for those um, statistic boffins that listen to our program, according to FIFA, Neymar is now the greatest ever goal scorer uh, in the history of the Brazilian Federation. And according to the Brazilian Federation, no, he's not. Pelé is. Going to have to score a few more, Edge. Yeah, he'll get to 95, won't he? He will. You would have thought so. No matter what happens with his club career, you think he'd continue to uh, to get a run for Brazil. Stop. Forget. Resign. Play. Don't play anymore. Mark Taylor style. Yeah, Mark Taylor. That was great. (laughs) Uh, My game of the week comes from uh, Germany. It was Germany 1, Japan 4. And off the back of this, Edge, you're going to tie in quickly with your, or not quickly, but immediately with uh, with your team of the week. I'll have a look at the Japan side of things First, though, this wasn't a particularly brilliant game, but the permutations and what has come of it uh, will continue to uh, ripple on for, for some months to come. If you recall the, or I recall the, the coverage of the Asian game guys on their podcast throughout 2022 and just how much pressure Hajime Moriyasu was under as manager of the Japanese national team, it was perhaps similar to Graham Arnold and the Socceroos, but they stuck with him, he stuck with it. And by the time the World Cup came around, they knocked off Germany uh, 2-1. Uh, they've gone and done it again, 4-1 this time in Wolfsburg. That's nine, uh, that is, sorry, four months out from the Asian Cup. And you'd have to say, Edge, they're looking like red-hot favourites heading into that tournament. This was a very strong German side looking to, to build into the home Euros, not playing the qualifiers, but playing a, a stack of competitive friendlies that are supposedly meant to, to tune them up after uh, under manager Hansi Flick. Uh, he's now gone. We discussed that in the main show. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a totally one-sided game despite the scoreline. It was 2-1 in the 89th minute, so a couple of goals did come late to, to blow it out a touch. But... We've got a plethora of attackers, Japan, headed by uh, Mitoma of, uh, of Brighton. Uh, and if you consider their other most recent window in June, they defeated El Salvador 6-0. Perhaps not a, a huge result, but they also beat Peru uh, 4-1, who we know are very competitive. So Japan are flying. Germany, though, edge your team of the week for all the wrong reasons. 
Yeah, they are my team of the week, uh, Willem, and, and that's because Hansi Flick, and we can get all the puns out of the way, Hansi's been flicked by the German Federation. First time ever in the history of the German Federation that this uh, drastic action has been taken. Um, obviously, Willem uh, mentioned uh, Japan's fantastic performance uh, at Wolfsburg, but it's Volkswagen Arena, Willem. So uh, imagine Hansi Flick's last match coaching Germany in Volkswagen Arena. Um Supporters actually booed and jeered um, the, uh, the German team uh, at the end of that game, and it just appears that uh, that was a bridge too far for the German Federation. I'm just interested in the statement that was made by Bernard Neuendorf, who is the uh, the chairman of the German FA. He said, for me personally, it is one of the most difficult decisions in my tenure so far because I value Hansi Flick and his co-coaches as football experts and people. However... Sporting success has top priority for the German Federation. Therefore, the decision was inevitable. So it's basically, you, you cop a, and they'd only won four of their last 16 matches under Flick. So obviously the pressure had been building. Um, uh, Marcus Sorg and uh, Danny Roll, who were his uh, assistants, they've been relieved of their duties as well. Um, and it just proves, Derek, that in the old-fashioned way, um, in this modern you know this modern sort of football world of uh, giving coaches the, the full uh, a full tenure to improve and develop and back them in um, in the world of international football. It's all about whether you win or lose on the weekend. And um, he's lost way too many games, and um, his head has been decapitated. Oh, wow! Speaking of Saudi Arabia, um, yeah, he he uh, he's had quite an interesting career as Flick. Because he didn't have this stellar pedigree leading into the Bayern Munich role. That was really his first big, proper big football role. If you look at it, um, he'd done a bit of management at um, uh, Hoffenheim, uh, Bamental, and then became an assistant manager in the mid-noughties, Salzburg. He was the German assistant coach for eight years. Um, and then he became the Bayern Munich assistant. And then when Nico Kovac um, was left, then... Um, uh, he then got the job, and he was just a caretaker manager. If you remember, he was not there for the long term, but it turned out that the players really, really loved his style. He was very different to, I think, you know, some of the managers they had before, like Pep Guardiola, very, very controlling, very meticulous. He just let them go out and play football. So it was a real kind of rocket up to the top of football. And of course, he won the treble, including the Champions League. So there's, you know, the pedigree was obviously there. Um, and then obviously when that long period of Yerky Love came to an end. Uh, Flick was the obvious replacement, but yeah, uh, maybe he a bit like Icarus. He uh, flew too close to the sun, and his and his wings were burnt. Uh, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, as always, where he lands. Uh, whether he'll get a top German job or or somewhere else. But you're right, Edge. At, uh, he was the second lowest average points uh, per game of any German manager, and. When you manage the mine shaft, you, you you know that's not good enough. They've replaced the, him with um, Rudy Voller, Edge. Yeah, uh, right. What's the, who would our equivalent be of of Rudy Voller? That'd be like Arnie going and bringing back a Terry Venables or a Frank Farina. Two thousand to two thousand and four, he was in place. Yeah, that's right. It is. It would be something like that. But also, there's another little part of this story which is quite intriguing. Was they obviously um, the federation obviously reacted to. Um, the public sentiment at the time because 
they hastily had the meeting to decide to sack him. They sacked him and then they said, oh, by the way, but can you take training on Sunday morning as your last duty? So he had to turn up to take training. That would have been interesting, wouldn't it? That was a bit like when Roy Hodgson was asked to do that press conference after he'd been sacked and then they still put him out to talk to the media and, and Roy wasn't impressed. Uh, he wasn't impressed at all. Uh, Rudy Voller, yeah, he's going to be the interim manager, so not not the full-time manager. Um, you know, a bit of a star player in his own right. Plenty, plenty of goals. Uh, probably most famous, though, for Frank Reichard spitting in his luxurious curly hair in the 1990s or late 1980s. Derek, your team of the week, still sitting pretty over midway uh, of the way through the European qualifiers, top of their group. Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about England in the main show, but we buried the lead, I think, here, because Scotland are clearly the team we need to be talking about. They've got a better qualifying record than England. They are five out of five. Uh, They won away in Cyprus in Larnaca, and that is the sort of result that in recent years, that that really would have bothered Scotland, a trip to, to, to a team like that and a kind of tight ground with a local crowd. But they were absolutely rampant in this game. They controlled it from start to finish. Uh, goals from McTominay, Porteous, uh, John McGinn. Um, McTominay was named man of the match. And while he can't get into the Manchester United side, he's certainly um, Scotland's uh, most important player. And they just need two points now from three qualifiers, two draws. They're away to Spain and Georgia. And then they're at home against Norway. So the job is not yet done. Uh, Scotland would probably still look at that and go. We've, we've mucked it up from... Um, better positions, uh, but they've won uh, 10 qualifying matches uh, in a row that uh, before this game. That's now 11. Um, and it's just halcyon days to be a Scotland fan. And this is a home nations team that isn't built around a star player like Gareth Bale. This is a team with, yeah, they've got some strong players in there. Obviously, Andy Robertson, Kieran Tierney. We mentioned McTominay. Of course, Lyndon Dykes, the wonder striker up front as well. Um, but this is a team that's more based on amazing coaching, and I think um, Steve Clark's got to get all of the all of the credit for this. He's a fine coach, uh, and he's doing a fabulous job at Scotland. So two points, lads. That's all we need, uh, and we'll we'll be in Germany. Come on, the Scots. How much is this group going to benefit, Derek, from the fact that it'll be their their second time around if they are to get these two points? The last Euros, due to COVID, was only three years ago. By the time that uh, by the time that the first ball will be kicked in Germany, so we see it with our own uh, with our own Socceroos as they have uh, have gone to, to World Cup on World Cup, having come from a position of not making uh, major tournaments so consistently. So, how how positive are you feeling about the fact that this group? You know, there's always one or two changes, but it's pretty similar, uh, are going to be at a second tournament, all that sort of initial, oh, we, we've made it, we're back, uh, we'll be gone, and they can just get down to work. Oh, look, I think Wales definitely benefited from the back-to-back the back-to-back tournaments. They were able to build on that progress. That, you know, obviously in their last tournament, Scotland was a bit of a whimper, really, wasn't it? It wasn't, you know, they were kind of like happy to be there. I think that if they do make it, and I should point out that by the time this goes to air, they may have made it, because if... Uh, um, uh, Norway and Georgia draw in Oslo this week. Then Scotland will qualify, but let's just let's just see. Um, but yeah, no, it's certainly back to back European Championships. It just would be an amazing achievement for Scotland. I remember them playing in the 1998 World Cup in France, a famous Gaza goal, the missed penalty from Gary McAllister, and then if Scotland didn't qualify from 1998 onwards, so. They've even got the luxury now of a game against England on Thursday, which they can now just go hell for leather and 
try and get a result there. But yeah, as I said, Willem, it's dreamland for Scotland. No, nicely said, Derek. I want to give a little bit of love to Avondale as my team of the week uh, of the Victorian MPL, of course. Edge, founded in 1984 as Keelor IKCA. Uh, they are Victorian champions for the first time. They defeated South Melbourne 4-0 in the grand final in Heidelberg on Sunday. It's been a bit of a steady build for the club over the past decade. They reached the second tier of Victorian football for the first time as recently as, as 2014 and then the year after that they made the top flight so they had the double promotions since then they've had a couple of grand final losses and a couple of appearances in the australia cup where they've uh, managed to, to bring a little bit of attention on themselves from a national perspective but yeah this really was the crowning glory uh, they're managed by zoran markovsky who i don't remember from nsl days edge but you you very well might uh, and Liam Boland as well runs around for them. He's finishing up, so this was his final game uh, for them. He is Victorian MPL's all-time leading goal scorer uh, and, and capped this off with a, a trademark finish from distance. Who could forget his effort for Green Gully way back when uh, when Mike Cockerell was uh, was commentating edge. Uh, Xander Guy, Stefan Zinni, and, and Liston Diaz were the others on the, on the score sheet. So well done to everyone at Avondale. Uh, that is uh, an historic victory after a, yeah, it was a long time in the making. Yes, yeah, you've got some um, some serious names you've just mentioned. That Stefan Zinni, the son of the great Andrew Zinni, who was a superstar for Brunswick Juventus back in the NSL days. Uh, Zoran Markovsky, Zoki, uh, as he's known around the traps, is an absolute lunatic. He played like a man possessed, and um, or he's the sort of player that used to sharpen his studs before he ran out of the ground with him. One of those blokes that you sort of gave a bit of a wide berth uh, on the field to. Uh, he was a bit of a lunatic, but he's turned out to be a very good coach. And Avondale, super well-organised club, really um, superbly led by their administration. And they've got a couple of backers behind them that don't mind uh, throwing in the folding stuff to make things work. And um, they gave um, South Melbourne, who is obviously the big daddy of uh, the NPL in Victoria and some say around Australia, they gave them a tailing, an absolute pasting in the grand final. So well done to Avondale and uh, the Hellas boys will be licking their wounds as they look towards the B League. I'm going to jump in first on the hot topic. We seem to always get these sort of uh, nastier, more sorted topics uh, at the end. We probably should uh, at some point do them a little bit earlier and then have a bit of fun uh, towards the back end of the show. But Manchester United and their, uh, their, their public relations, Derek, needs to be addressed at some point. This is more serious than PR. There are some pretty serious uh, issues and allegations at play here. But uh, this week, a police investigation uh, was opened into Anthony, their Brazilian winger, uh, allegations of domestic abuse against or made by his uh, by his former girlfriend. He's also facing further allegations of assault uh, made by a woman in an interview on Brazilian television. Uh, he was dropped by the Brazil squad uh, and was due to return to to Man U on Monday. Although that was uh, that was has since been delayed. He does it should be said deny uh, all of these allegations, and that comes following the challenge that the club have had sort of long term regarding uh, Mason Greenwood. Uh, he was an academy product who January, in January 2022 was arrested uh, and later charged with attempted rape of his partner. Uh, those charges were not so much, uh, they were dropped. He wasn't necessarily acquitted, but they were dropped after key witnesses uh, withdrew their cooperation. Uh, the Greenwood situation continues to drift. He hasn't played for United since, but he has recently signed on loan at Cadafe in Spain. Uh, and yeah, his potential return hasn't been ruled in or out. But as I say, it does just continue to drift along, Derek. So now with the Anthony situation compounding it, it has sort of come into the spotlight again for a club the size of United, one of the biggest in the world in terms of 
reach, marketing, global status. Do you think they do enough to make definitive statements around these issues? No, I don't. Um, I wonder what's happened to Manchester United. What has happened? I mean, not just the results on the pitch, which, of course, for the best part of a decade or more have been not not of the standard that they or their supporters um, would expect. Uh, you know, they've, they've trashed, you know, various footballers' careers, uh, made terrible signings. Um, the stadium is falling to bits. Uh, they have made some atrocious decisions in the man- managerial market, particularly the appointment of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Jose Mourinho, Ralph Ranić, uh, re-signing Ronaldo. Um, you know the, the, the list. Go- the list goes on. Then, it, then when it comes to integrity, I remember when Yap Stam wrote something slightly negative about Manchester United in Alex Ferguson in his autobiography, and Ferguson got rid of him the next day, and he was one of the biggest footballers in the world. Um, when Roy Keane stepped out of line, um, Sir Alex Ferguson got rid of him. When David Beckham stepped out of line, he kicked a football boot at him. Um, it, it, you know, I just feel like the kind of fibre of this club has been slowly hollowed out by a series of terrible administration, that word again, and terrible uh, executive management. And it's all culminating in the way that the club has dealt with the Mason Greenwood and then um, the Anthony. I know they've finally come out and made a statement, but it was a nothing statement. It doesn't say anything. They're basically just saying, yeah, something might have happened. It may not have happened. Uh, We'll wait to see what the outcome is. And yes, I get it. Um, Anthony is not guilty. You know, he got to be very careful about that from a legal point of view. But, you know, from the stand, the standards of the club, um, you, I think you've got to take a stronger view on that. They took them a long time to get their statement out. Brazil, on the other hand, were very quick to get their statement out and sideline Anthony. Um, and then when you look at Mason Greenwood, there were, uh, you know, the, fee, the women's team were threatening uh, action if Mason Greenwood uh, was retained. They went through this laborious internal process where it was really obvious that this player was collateral damage and they needed to move him on and they haven't actually moved him on. They've just put him out on loan to Getafe. So he will he will come back to Manchester United and then they will still have the same problem. So it's a very complicated issue when it comes to allegations. Uh, Mason Greenwood was, well, he wasn't found innocent. The uh, accusations were dropped, I think, or the charges were dropped, which is different. But it's very difficult because you've got an asset, you've got a player that, that's worth something and you need to look after that. But I just feel like the whole way, the shambles, the omni-shambles around the communication, if you can't tell, I think has been really, really poor. I thought Manchester United stood for something, even in my most bitterest rival days. They're an absolute shell of the club at the moment. No, beautifully said, Derek. Not a lot I can uh, I can add off the back of that. But to, to sort of further, you know, sort of um, consolidate on your point that the lack of Definitive statement, just the yeah, the time that these things seem to drift on and that just opens up um, online sort of debate and the ability for people to jump in and just let things sort of fester as it continues to roll on. I mean, as I say, the Mason Greenwood thing, we're nearly, we're nearly 18 months in and there's, yeah, as you say, a, a very high chance that he will, uh, we will return to the club, to a club that you definitely feel stands for something, Derek. Arsenal, um, you've been immensely proud of them over the past season and a little bit, but unfortunately their women have had a bit of a disaster in the Champions League. Yeah, that's right. And we'll be looking forward. I'm sure Edge um, and Adam and myself in particular will be looking forward to Arsenal men's returning to the Champions League after such an absence. But we won't be watching the women. And the women made the semi-final. They nearly got to the final last year. They're 
certainly a team on the rise. Uh, they're, you know, they're running Chelsea very close in uh, the WSL, but it was nothing short of a disaster against Paris FC. Um, not to be confused with PSG, who are another PSG Feminino or another club in uh, in the top division of French um, women's football. They're a decent enough side with some pedigree, but they're nowhere near the standard of Arsenal. They drew three all, um, a couple of goals for Alessia Russo, the uh, newly acquired player from Manchester United, and, and she'll be bitterly disappointed now to miss out on uh on Champions League qualification. It was another player that I got to see at close quarters, and I hope I'm going to butcher her name, but uh, Chiamaka Nanadozi, who was playing in golf for Nigeria during the uh, World Cup over here. She was the uh, the star in the shootout. Uh, they won 4-2, uh, and we'll go in, go into, uh, go into the, uh, into the group stages, and Arsenal won't, won't get there. And uh, the question that I have, and uh, maybe I'll put it to Edge, is, is, uh, no excuses here, but is there a case for World Cup burnout here? Arsenal had the likes of, obviously, Rousseau, Catley, Ford, Blackstenius all reached the latter stages of the tournament. There isn't a lot of international pedigree in the Paris FC side. Do you feel like just so soon, having come out of the Women's World Cup, to be suddenly doing this? I think Arsenal got caught out by that. Oh, absolutely. I think there's there's got to be some correlation there. They must be so tired, the, the women that played at the a World Cup and went deep into the tournament. But uh, I just want to say Paris FC, they're actually one of the um, real uh, high performers of French women's football. They're, I think their men's team is, might, might, have, might even be in the third tier of, of um, French football. I might stand to be corrected there, but their women's program is very, very strong. I'm not surprised that um, they could get off the canvas and do that. But, but I, I think the fatigue and hangover of World Cup exploits would hurt Arsenal. I think they all got together. I think I'm not sure how many training sessions they had, um, Derek, before they went and played that game. But it wouldn't have been too many. Edge to close your uh, your hot topic. We have uh, we have done it a couple of times. Do you want to go around the roundabout once more on the artificial pitches? Yeah, I just think artificial purpose. They have their place in fo- the football ecosystem at the community level. Yeah, no problems. But at the national and international level, forget about it. Uh, artificial perch the pitches. They're simply not the same as turf. Um, they impact massively on the players in terms of recovery. I know, um, obviously, still involved in uh, working with uh, elite athletes at the uh, at the top level. When they play regularly on artificial surfaces, um, it takes them longer to recover. The surfaces are harder. They're built on a concrete base. Um, it just is not conducive to elite football. Um, and this is just... I don't have any imperial data to back up this opinion but they have less give the surfaces have less give and that's got to lead to greater injury now whether jackson irvine's injury as a result of the artificial surface at cowboy stadium in dallas yes or no but there's one thing i'd be fairly confident about and that that the surface doesn't have any give so it might have been impacted greater the extent of the injury by that so I just think that artificial pitches forget about them for national and international level and really confused as to why they're still being used at this level. That's my rant to end stoppage time with them. Yeah, we know the relationship between club and country can be tenuous at the best of time, so it's going to take a bit of the uh, the soccer's best diplomacy as the players return, probably not in great shape uh, off the back of running around on that uh, to their club. 
uh, to their clubs to uh, yeah to, to smooth that over and make sure that uh, relations do stay positive as we move forward. Derek Dyson, Michael Edgley, thank you. Thank you to Adam Maloney on the buttons as well. And thank you for your company on Stoppage Time. Rob Gilbert will be back to lead the main show next Tuesday morning. In the meantime, please do subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on X at box to box NTS. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends to join us next time as we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.